invite you to join me this morning in the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking this morning again at chapter 1. We're starting a, a, a series on this a wonderful gospel. And this morning we're going to begin reading to verse 26, so we uh, catch the context and then read through verse 45. And later on we'll read verses um, in Mary's song, verse 46 and following. Remember the angels already come and appeared to um, Zechariah and promised <clears throat> that old Elizabeth, who was barren, was going to have a child, and they were going to call his name uh, John. And now, so in the sixth month, verse 26, that would be six months after that announcement, or six months uh, into Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel now comes with another message. Let's give our attention to God's Word, verse 26 of Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So far, the reading in God's Word will be picking up, again, as I said, a little later, verses 46 and following. This morning, we're just looking at this idea of the fellowship of faith, the fellowship of faith. One of the things that I, uh, every year, come to delight in as I go back and, and study the Christmas story is I love how persistently it resists and undermines our sentimentalized versions of the event. Our uh, preferred version is the Sunday school dramatized version. Maybe if you grew up in the church, uh, you participated in those dramas. It involves this sweet young couple in a cozy little uh, stable. There's kindly observant livestock uh, nearby. Uh, there are innocent young shepherd boys 
who are paying close attention in a choir of beautiful angels uh, singing their Christmas songs. And then on top of it all, you have this pretty star with glittery extended beams of light illuminating the uh, bucolic scene. The whole thing is just adorable. Uh, The real thing, of course, was a train wreck. Or at least it was a lot messier and vastly more disruptive and difficult than we tend to imagine. When redemption comes, it's often messy and often misunderstood. Grace usually involves a scandal, an offense to religious sensibilities. And that's the true version of the Christmas story. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, verse 6, Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Blessed are those who are not offended by the scandalous grace of the gospel. This morning we're going to look first at Mary's plight, and then Mary's blessing, and finally Mary's joy revealed in her song. Mary's plight, then, first of all, uh, the angel comes, as we read, and to this very young girl, 13 years old, very likely, 13, maybe 14, uh, who is betrothed. Um, it's, it's like engagement, it just it's more uh, binding. It's a marriage agreement that's a legal contract. She's a young girl there in Nazareth, and one day an angel appears to her and announces that she's going to have a child. She asks the obvious question, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit of God is going to bring life into your womb. And, uh, and then explains the wonder of this event that because it's really the most glorious announcement the world has ever heard until that point. The world had never heard such good news that, that the Son of God was actually going to enter this world as a Savior of the world. You will call His name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. That a king was entering who was going to establish a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom of peace and love and joy forever and ever. It's unbelievably good news for a lost world. It is glorious good news. God so loved this world that He gave His Son, and this little baby is the evidence of the infinite love of God for sinners. It's great news. And yet, this incredibly good news puts Mary in an extremely difficult position. She is going to be pregnant out of wedlock. Now, for us, we have some sense of the scandal of that, but nothing like what she would have experienced. You see, in Mary's world, the society was built not around the individual as it is here in America. Here in America, if you do your own thing, you pursue your dreams, you make your way, you're applauded. In Mary's world, the society was built around the family, the clan. Your family was your world, your significance, your identity. Your great purpose in life was to somehow enhance the family honor, the family name. Your greatest crime, your greatest fear in life is that somehow you would bring dishonor to your family. It's an honor culture. Shame is, is worse than death. And Mary now is going to be the cause of shame and dishonor for her family. She's going to be pregnant out of wedlock. 
it would be a disastrous event. In the eyes of everyone standing around, everyone who's looking in, it would be a devastating, not only for her family, it would be devastating as it brought shame upon Joseph and, and his family. I think it's helpful if we get some sense of how unbelievably disruptive the angel's announcement really was for this young girl. The text doesn't make a big deal of it, but to the original reader, the point would be so obvious it would not need to be mentioned. The original reader would immediately understand the grave predicament uh, that Mary finds herself in. How is she going to explain this to her family, her parents, her friends? We read the story and uh, we hear it and receive it cheerfully, joyfully. This is, this is the Christmas story. But her family, her friends, her parents are going to receive this news with horror. You're what? And notice, we read in Matthew that Mary was found to be with child. Apparently, she had not gone about explaining this to people, but, but how would you? I mean, I mean, just honestly, how would you? I'm pregnant and, and God did it. I mean, people laugh in your face, right? And it seems tawdry. Mary's a, she's, a, she's a religious Jewish young girl. She's in, in Galilee. It's a, Galilee was known for very, very serious Judaism. So you, 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 can't, you can't say this. It, it, would be, it would be involving God in sexual sin of some sort. The religious would think it would be blasphemous that you would have the audacity to suggest that God had somehow miraculously impregnated you. It's stank of pagan mythology. That's what the pagan gods did. And so it's wicked enough to be uh, pregnant out of wedlock to suggest that God somehow had a part in it is twisted beyond imagination. We're used to the story. We love the story. But put yourself in Mary's shoes. How do you explain this story for the first time? Who's going to believe you? Nobody's going to believe you. Much more they will be deeply offended. Joseph didn't believe her. We read in Matthew that when Mary was found to be with child, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. That was the gracious thing to do. Joseph had two options in that context, in that culture. One option would be to file legal charges, to bring a lawsuit against her. He could have brought legal charges and publicly exposed her and shamed her as an adulteress. But he was a good man, the text says, and unwilling to put her to public shame. And so he determined simply to part ways with her, leave her to her private shame. It was the gracious thing to do. Rosaria Butterfield, if you've read her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she described her conversion to Christianity as a train wreck. It was not this peaceful, pleasant experience of sort of coming into the light and all was joy and peace. Uh, Conversion destroyed her life. She lost everything. She lost her friends. She lost her job. She lost her reputation. She lost everything in becoming a Christian. Well, Gabriel's announcement was a train wreck for Mary. Instead of being honored, instead of people gathering around her and rejoicing over this gift of, of new life, she's going to be shamed. 
Instead of uh, being able as a young girl to look forward to your wedding day when, when the bride particularly would be honored and exalted and there would be great rejoicing over this wedding, all of that disappears. Joseph will certainly divorce her. She will be assumed to be guilty. She will have brought great shame to her family. Hardship and shame and condemnation are often part of God's redemptive works of grace in our own life. Matthew Black, I was listening to him on this text, and he just wisely said, Do you know that, did you know that God asks us to bear bitter circumstances on the road to redemption? There's this incredible juxtaposition of realities here. On the one hand, you have the wonderful, incredible reality of the announcement of the Savior who's going to be born. It's, it's unbelievable. Mary has the, the very Son of God is going to be in her womb. She is in the middle of God's greatest work of redemption. And yet, on the other hand, in that process, she is going to be exposed to heartache and shame and condemnation. She's going to be judged by those who simply cannot imagine or see the good thing that God is doing. And this is often part of God's way as He works in our lives, as He works throughout the ages. Some of God's most beautiful work will make no sense to those around us, and they will judge us wrongly. When an elect child of God comes to faith in a Buddhist culture or an Islamic culture, they are going to be judged as shaming their family, bringing dishonor to their family, betraying their family. Even in the church, there are times when God's gracious work will involve circumstances that others easily misunderstand and maybe take offense and wrongly judge. Think about the Apostle Paul. Here is this man miraculously converted, uniquely commissioned by Jesus Christ to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet when he, when he does that, there are Christians, Jewish Christians, who charge him with wrongdoing. Because Paul is not making the Gentiles come under the law the way that they're experienced, the, the, the way they're used to being under the law. So Paul is doing exactly what Jesus Christ commissioned him to do. He is in the middle of God's redemptive work for the Gentiles. And there are believers, fellow Christians, judging him as sinning. It's often that way. I remember John Patton, a great missionary to the New Hebrides, and when he was going to go, everyone understood that he was putting his life in danger, and that was foolish enough, but he was going to take this, his sweet young wife along. And people would charge him as being a poor husband, not thinking about the, the well-being of his family. And, and you might say they were proved right. She died shortly after arriving. But that's not the way God sees it. God used John Patton in a, in a powerful way, not only for his own, in his own mission work, but to inspire many others to go. You see, sometimes God will call you to a particular path of obedience and faith, and people will be angry with you. They'll be upset. They don't understand. They will charge you with moral failure. They'll charge you with great folly. Can you imagine what Joseph's friends said to him when Joseph decided after the angel came to him that he was not going to put Mary away? His friends would be offended. 
that Joseph would, would so foolishly bind himself and continue on in marriage to an obviously wicked woman, or at least someone who had sinned greatly. Just to make the point that God's grace in your life will often be messy, disruptive, and misunderstood. And I think we could all share maybe stories, and many of us could share share stories of, of, of the truth of that. So as Mary now, verse 39, in those days, those messy, disruptive, painful days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. There are several clues here that Mary is extremely motivated, uh, very, very eager to make this trip. Um, she's, she's, we know she's motivated. For, on the one hand, it's, it's a big trip. Um, she's going, she lives up in the north in Nazareth. She's going down to Judah, way down south. It's a journey of about 100 miles. It's not an easy thing to just hit the road walking 100 miles. As a young girl, now she maybe has some companions, but, but it's a big journey. It's not something you do lightly. And we're told that she does it with haste. Why does she go with haste? Why does Luke tell us this? Well, her life is falling apart. Things have got to be tense at home. And, and Elizabeth, you see, would, would be a wonderful confirmation that the angel had given Mary this name. Even now, Elizabeth, the one who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month. Here's a relative. We don't know exactly the nature of the relationship, but a relative, someone that Mary would be familiar with. And she would be this this confirmation that what was happening to her really was God at work. God beautifully, redemptively at work in her body. And evidence that nothing is impossible with this God. Nothing, not even making sense of the mess that she found herself in. And the other beautiful thing of this is Elizabeth would believe her. Can you imagine the joy of of, of having somebody who gets it? Somebody you could tell this amazing, outrageous, scandalous story to, and they would receive it and believe it. Mary is is going to tell her, uh, Elizabeth, I am a virgin and I am pregnant. That is humanly impossible. Who will believe what is humanly impossible? Well, maybe a godly old barren woman who's in the sixth month of her pregnancy by the miraculous power of the same God. She would understand. She had experienced it. She knows it. And so Mary makes haste to see Elizabeth. But even Mary could not have imagined the blessing that God had in store for her when she entered Elizabeth's door. And so secondly, Mary's blessing. She enters the door. Just the drama of this. And she greets Elizabeth. Can you imagine maybe the uncertainty in Mary's eyes, the tremble maybe in her voice? She's not sure. She doesn't know how Elizabeth will respond. She has no idea that Elizabeth would know, right? You don't have, you don't have, you don't have tweets, you don't have emails, you don't have phone calls. She's just going to Elizabeth, and she enters the door. And if, if it were a normal circumstance, Elizabeth would be horrified. And so she enters the door and greets Elizabeth. Elizabeth. 
And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Nobody had had said that to Mary. What amazing blessing. God had preceded her. God had let Elizabeth in. Elizabeth already knew. Can you imagine the relief and the blessing? If you're a 13-year-old girl, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, wouldn't this be a tender blessing of God that you don't need to explain this? She already knows. I just The kindness of the Lord there. Elizabeth already knows. The Spirit of God had informed her. Oh, what a blessing that would have been to Mary's heart. And then the blessing of Elizabeth's faith. You see, when we again, we know the story, so we read it, and yeah, Elizabeth saw Mary, and she rejoiced. <clears throat> that is not how these things happen. It is so abnormal. The normal thing, just if Elizabeth is this old, godly woman, full of the grace of God, the normal thing to do upon receiving into her home this young, unwed pregnant relative, the normal thing you would expect would for Elizabeth to go to Mary and wrap her arms around her and say, come, you poor, poor thing, you, you poor little thing, right? Just shower compassion and mercy and grace all over Mary. That is not what she does. There's no pity. There's no compassion. There's ecstasy. There's rejoicing. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of the womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me, to a 13-year-old girl? How do you explain that? Well, the only answer is faith. Elizabeth believes what God has said. And because she believes what God has said, she doesn't just see Mary, she sees the work of God. She's ecstatic about what God is doing, about what's happened in Mary's womb. She recognizes that it is the Lord himself in Mary's womb. And Elizabeth knows who she's talking about when she's talking about the Lord. This is the one that God had promised. And so she's humbled. She's she's blessed that God would give her the pleasure of meeting her Lord, though he's in, in the form of a fetus, maybe weeks old at best. Within Mary's womb. Just an aside here, right? If, if there's ever a doubt about the reality of a fetus being a human life with personhood and significance and identity, uh, this text just destroys it, doesn't it? She, Mary is weeks into her pregnancy, and Elizabeth worships the Lord in fetal form in Mary's womb. And not only does Elizabeth worship her Lord in Mary's womb, but the fetus in Elizabeth's womb joins in. Elizabeth says, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. John, in his fetal state, also recognizes the glory of his incarnate Lord. John does this by the filling of the Holy Spirit. When Gabriel came to Zechariah, he told Zechariah that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John was born again before he was born. Right? God is not bound by age. The Holy Spirit blows where he will. Sometimes just, you know, when Baptists say babies can't believe, I'd say, well, John believed. 
John believed and rejoiced, leaped. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is not bound. But the blessing of Elizabeth's faith would be such an encouragement. And then the blessing of Elizabeth's praise. Praise for Mary's faith. Blessed is she, verse 45, verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of that what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, who do you think Elizabeth is thinking about? There was another significant person in her life who did not believe uh, the blessing that was spoken by the Lord. Mary, uh, Elizabeth hasn't heard from him in a while. Right? Because he can't talk. He didn't believe. And so when Elizabeth uh, meets Mary, she delights in Mary's faith. Here is the old priest, the godly old priest, who couldn't believe the message of the angel, even though it would mean glory and honor for him and Elizabeth. And yet here's this young peasant girl, 13 years old, who does believe the message of the angel, even though it's going to bring to her shame and sorrow. Elizabeth rejoices in this faith. What a great encouragement and blessing to young Mary, right? She's not alone. God has given her a companion in the faith. What seemed scandalous to the world and and scandalous almost undoubtedly to her family and scandalous to, to Joseph was seen as glorious and good in the eyes of the Lord and this wonderful old saint. And, and Elizabeth encourages her and blesses her. Good for you, girl. Right? That's what she's saying. Blessed are you who, who believed. Isn't it true that when we're in times of trial, a word of encouragement goes a long way? When a, when a brother or sister comes along and says, you're doing a great job. You're, you're doing this marvelously well. I love your faith. I love the way you're holding on to the Lord. I love the way that you're not um, judging God with wrongdoing here. I love the way that even though you don't understand how this is going to work out, and even though you're grieving some of the circumstances that God in His wisdom has brought into your life, I love your faith. I think Sarah Groves has a song, Don't Mind If You Got Something Nice to Say About Me. We need encouragement particularly in times of trial. And, and, and encouragement, particularly when maybe we think that we're, maybe we are wrong. People are judging us. There is scandal involved in, in, in God's gracious work in our life. But what a beautiful thing to have the fellowship, you see, of faith. This is, this is what fellowship of the saints ought to look like. Because as we walk this pilgrim road, there are hard things and, and scandalous things as God does his work of grace. There will be decisions that have to be made sometimes that don't make sense to a watching world and maybe not even other believers. But it ought to make perfect sense in the body of Christ. Because what's foolishness in the eyes of the world is wisdom in the mind of God and ought to be glory to the mind of his, of his children. We celebrate what others consider foolish and scandalous. Salvation by confessing your sin, admitting what a, what a failure you are, right in front of everybody, or, or just being open about that your, your sin, your failure. Are you out of your mind? And religious people will even charge you. What, what would the children think? The children will think, wow. What an amazing God that can even humble mom and dad. What an amazing gospel that's able to save a great sinner like that. But that's not how religious people think. You see, it's, it's foolishness to religious people and to the world. 
Find life by dying to yourself. Find joy by embracing your enemies. Peace by, by embracing those who hurt you. Looking forward to death. Rejoicing to suffer for Christ's sake. Delighting to give away your rights. To bear wrong. Willing to suffer shame and loss if Christ can be served and the gospel can be revealed and someone else can be blessed and redeemed in it. It makes no sense except to those who believe and embrace God's redeeming ways. We ought to delight in the wonderful, precious fellowship of faith. Elizabeth's faith and her joy in God's work, even in the midst of the mess, inspires Mary here. It encourages her in her own faith, and Mary breaks out in song. And we find that in verse 46. If you have your Bible, read with me. Verse 46 and following. This is Mary's song. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Mary is able, in the midst of the the disruptive, scandalous circumstances, she's able to see the blessing of God. She's able to see the big picture. She She is going to give birth to the very Son of God, and generations will call her blessed. For he who is his is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And then Mary delights in the disruptive and even destructive ways of God's redemption. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abram, and to his offspring forever. She's delighting, you see, in the unexpected ways of God. Here she is, a absolute nobody in the eyes of the world. A young, peasant, Jewish girl from Nazareth. And yet God chose her to bring his Savior into the world. And this little baby is going to be nothing in the eyes of the world, utterly insignificant, utterly weak, and yet he will bring down the mighty from their thrones. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon on this, says the most surprising thing that has ever happened in the world is the coming of the Son of God into it. The most revolutionary thing in the world today is the Christian gospel. Why? Because it is the, almost the exact opposite of anything that you and I would have ever imagined. Mary rejoices in the disruptive and destructive power of the grace of God. He turns the world on its head in order to rescue sinners. Verses 51 through 52. Martin Lloyd-Jones, just I'd like to read a bit of what he said. I think it's really helpful. He said it's, it's significant that God's action in salvation, in the salvation of man, condemns and demolishes all in which men trust or have ever trusted. What does God destroy? Well, you look at the text, he destroyed man's wisdom. He scattered those who are proud in the imagination of their hearts. He, secondly, puts down the mighty from their seats. 
It's a great theme in the Bible. God's always pulling people off their self-exalted throne, right? So uh, Lloyd-Jones says, uh, God knows that the final sin in the hearts of men and women is the sin of pride. They are proud of intellect, proud of position, proud of power, proud of status. And so God is always fighting it and demolishing it and always throwing it down. The Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And third, the rich are sent away empty. And that doesn't mean rich in a material sense, but rich in a moral sense. The man who, like the Pharisee, went and boasted about his moral riches before God, Jesus says that man went home with nothing. But the one who came in his bankruptcy, the one who came and acknowledged that he had nothing to offer before the Lord except his sin and begged for mercy, that man went home wealthy. That man went home justified. And so Jones wraps up everything that man boasts in, his intellect, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code. Every one of them is demolished by Jesus, the Son of God. Praise God. My question, friends, is have you experienced God's demolition work in your life? Has God graciously cast you down from your throne of pride? Or are you sitting here this morning pretty comfortable on that throne? You're a good man, you're a good woman, you're living a basically a good life, you run a good business, you, you put in a good day's work, your kids are pretty, uh, you know, pretty organized, you've got things pretty much under control. Has God rescued you from the blindness of your intellect, the blindness of your so-called wisdom? Has God liberated you from your self-righteous riches so you can have the treasure of a hungry heart and all the grace that God promises to that? Friends, God's grace is disruptive. It disrupts our dreams, our expectations. It sets our life sometimes on its head. God's grace will bring you to places of death, the death of your dreams, death of your expectations, death to your self-serving ways, death to what you thought mattered most. Right? And, and if it hasn't done those things, if it isn't doing those things, then the question is, are you really experiencing the gospel? Are you really experiencing the power of God in your life? That's not to say that if you find blessings all around you, you're somehow outside of God's grace. God loves to shower blessings, but the gospel will come and disrupt your life. The gospel will come and and, and give a hard no to your self-serving ways. And the gospel will come and convict you because of your sin. The gospel will humble you in the midst of all those blessings as you recognize you don't deserve them. You didn't work for them. They are a gift that you do not deserve. And that begins with your spouse and your, your kids. It begins with your friends, your health, all the blessings. You don't, it's all grace, all grace. And the gospel will humble you. To receive this Jesus who's Lord and King then is to receive his, demo, his demolition work gladly in your life. Lord, any, any throne of pride, tear it down. Any confidence and in intellect, rip that away. Open my eyes to see the, the truth. Any riches that I might claim because of my religious performance, God, whatever you need to do, take it away from me. Lest I be lost, lest I miss the glory of this Jesus, and the wonder of God's grace. Jesus Christ, friends, has come into the world to save sinners. 
And when God's grace collides with a sinner's life, it's usually a mess. And yet it's a glorious mess. And the testimony of your life will be, uh, I was maybe just on my way in my pride, in my intellect, in my riches, and, and Jesus destroyed it all to give me something so much more. And one of the joys then of a Christian as we, as we walk this road together in the fellowship of faith is that we get, to, we get to delight and rejoice together in God's disruptive grace. And we get to grow together and know that there's more to experience, both in terms of God upending us and God turning us inside out and, and tearing things down and taking things away, and then more of experiencing all the joy and the grace and the peace and the life and the power of God's grace. All because Jesus Christ has come. Come and see. Come and worship this precious King. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, some of us this morning are right in the middle of your demolition work, and I thank you for that. We have broken dreams. We have utterly uh, disrupted expectations. We have things that don't work right, and maybe never will. I thank you, Father, that you promise us that you restore all that you take away and you restore it a hundredfold. Peter came and said, Lord, we've given up everything to come and follow you and and Jesus, you promised him that no one who gives away precious things and even good things for Christ's sake will not receive a hundredfold. So, Father, I pray that we would have grace today to to believe your work in our life. And, Father, I, I pray that today we would be good encouragers as we build each other up in the faith, as we praise each other for God's work of grace in our lives, as we rejoice together in your kindness to us, in your amazing goodness to us, as we celebrate together our Lord Jesus Christ. And this beautiful grace that brings us to death so that we might know everlasting life. Oh God, may we embrace your ways. May we love your son. Cherish your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing together 214 angels we have heard on high. They celebrated. We'll see that tonight. Uh, the amazing grace of God at work. Uh, let's celebrate uh, the same with them. Number 214, let's stand together and sing.
God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now receive the blessing purchased by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance of His face upon you and give you His peace. Amen.